It's Thursday, February 13th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Oregon is number one in the country for marijuana dispensaries per capita. Eugene schools consider how to better accommodate religious holidays. Code Red commemorates the victims of mass shootings with short plays. A new publication explores white supremacy and racism in Oregon's history. Also, scamming valentines, flip phones come back, and new emojis. That's all on this week's Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. Journalism Fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Brian Bull. So this week we had some interesting local reporting. Uh, Brian, let's start with you. Well, the Oregon Historical Quarterly is out, the latest issue, winter uh, 2019. And this is one special issue, they call it. I first reported it back in 2018 when they announced it. And it's a look at the state's legacy of white supremacy. And it's a pretty extensive look back all the way before the uh, state actually became officially a state in 1859, uh, beginning with the displacement of Native American tribes for their land, moving on to special laws and restrictions that kept African Americans from owning said land, and then moved into exploitation, mistreatment of immigrant laborers, including many from Southeast Asia, and then the uh, rise of groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and the White Aryan Resistance in the 20th century. And uh, a lot of people are surprised, including myself, to have learned that here in Eugene, back in the 20s, there was even a clavern. It's just simply uh, the existence of a Klan presence here in Eugene. In fact, I've seen photos of a uh, Klan rally taken in Lane County wow. from the archives. So it's a little stark and a little unsettling. Uh, but there was also photos of uh, the KKK having parades and marches in broad daylight, uh, say, through uh, Portland and Ashland. So at that point, uh, at that time, uh, KKK was seen almost as like a uh, civic organization like the Knights of Columbus or the Elks, for that mm. matter. And it was very widely accepted. I talked to the editor, Eliza Canty jones about this issue And she says she wants people to read this with an open mind and learn uh, from parents to lawmakers to anyone who wants to understand just how prominent this issue was and still remains to this day. One really interesting aspect of this entire publication was just how commonplace and out in the open racism was uh, from Indian sports mascots on school teams to a small chain of restaurants that, believe it or not, was called the Coon Chicken Inn. And the entrance to this, this was like a small chain of chicken restaurants. Uh, They had one in Portland. There was another in Seattle, Salt Lake City. Um, And the entrance was a grotesque caricature, a giant head of a black porter uh, with the uh, jet black skin and exaggerated lips as an entrance. He actually walked through this head Hmm. to get into the restaurant. So it's just really uh, one of the many kind of unsettling examples that you could see here. And then in the late 1990s, we had the murder of an Ethiopian immigrant, uh, Mugaleta Seurat, who was beaten to death by skinheads in the Portland area. I asked Canty Jones if the rhetoric and racial hostilities of the past few years can signal a return of that kind of violence. And here's what she said. I think we've seen that violence, haven't we? You saw the murders at the Tree of Life Synagogue 
You saw the mass murders at, you know, in the Walmart in El Paso. We had several years ago, uh, several victims, I believe, at the community college in Roseburg. Obviously the murders of the men on the MAX train that Jerry McChristian is on trial for right now. I think the violence is here. It's not just in the Pacific Northwest, and it's not just in the United States. So this edition of the Oregon Historical Quarterly is available online and for sale at the Oregon Historical Society up in Portland. And Brian, is this Oregon Quarterly edition also distributed to schools? I mean, how is it accessible to um, educators? And It is available online, and mm-hmm. I think that people can uh, access it uh, either online and maybe have a downloadable version that they can refer to students. And again, you can also pick up an edition at the Oregon Historical Quarterly, uh, headquartered up there in Portland. It's a fascinating read and reminds us all that Oregon, as well as the United States in general, has a very checkered history that needs to be appreciated in full. So Elizabeth, you've been working on a few different stories this week, including one about the Eugene 4J School District. Yes. So um, at the last 4J school school board meeting, which was almost four hours long, I think a record for them, Um, one of the things that they talked about was updating their religious observation policies. So essentially, over the past few years, a lot of parents, specifically Jewish parents, have been complaining that their children are missing important field trips, important school events, because they're scheduled on religious holidays. They're asking the school board to please consider these holidays and religious observations when planning things. And so basically the school board is looking into whether or not they can actually make this a new policy because it's mandated by federal law that the schools must remain secular or non-religious. Well, Elizabeth, I'm wondering, would it be an option to actually make some Jewish holidays, holidays for the whole school? It sounds like it's not possible because even with Christmas, which does align with the winter holiday, is essentially a winter holiday. It's not necessarily an observation of Christmas. So kind of including these holidays into the calendar schedule of schools doesn't seem like a possibility. But the idea would be that people who make the school calendar would have to figure that in somehow while they're making plans for the year. Yeah, they would have to consider not scheduling things on specific dates. So yes, um, Mm -hmm. just making sure that they're recognizing this religious holiday without giving everyone the day off, essentially. That's a tough act because you're trying to be inclusive and respectful, but at the same time, try to avoid that religious association. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are so many religious holidays. I mean, among different groups, it's kind of hard to schedule everything around each one I can't imagine that's tough but I guess they are still sort of hashing it out is that right they are and so even uh, Gordon Lafer one of the school board members mentioned that there are some other possibilities that they could look into Muslim students who are fasting during the month of Ramadan the school should make opportunities for them if they don't want to be in the cafeteria during the lunch hour but want to be in the library or something like that So, but ultimately the school board has not decided on what they are going to do. So it's essentially an ongoing conversation as far as what the next steps are. Well, I heard about this huge pile of trash that was found on the beach south of Newport last weekend. I spoke with the policy director of a conservation organization who actually found the trash. This is Charlie Plyben with Surfrider Foundation. 
He was just out for a walk on the beach near his home, and he says what at first looked like a big pile of wood and pallets turned out to have about two dozen black garbage bags full of trash kind of buried inside. And he said it wasn't, to some extent, there was some ordinary household garbage. Dog food bags to cans of food. But as he got a little bit more into it, uh, all the sort of telltale signs, um, homemade methamphetamines were sort of um, mixed in there. So there were bleach bottles and there were um, some butane and other solvents. And so Plybin was worried about the tide coming in and strewing this trash across the beach. So he asked a couple of neighbors to help him gather it together. And he contacted the ranger with Oregon Parks and Recreation, who came out with a truck for them to put the bags and debris in. And it got hauled away. So, Rachel, did uh, Plybin think someone had dumped all this trash on the beach? Yeah, that's what he thought. Um, He thought it was possibly one person responsible for this big pile But I reached out to Oregon State Police and the Parks Department. OSP actually didn't know anything about the case, but Chris Havel with the Parks Department said he doesn't think it was necessarily one person who dumped the trash. And he says the the way that it piled up was likely the result of wind and the ocean tides pushing it together. It is possible that um, somebody dumped. But the report that I have right now is that it was probably several incidents, maybe spread over time, where somebody or several somebodies came down and left trash on the beach. So he basically says it could be somebody dumped it, but it was probably several incidents. So on top of the fact that this garbage had a lot of materials used in making methamphetamines, I mean, isn't it also illegal to dump trash on the beach? Yes. I mean, clearly it's illegal to make methamphetamine, um, but it's also a misdemeanor to dump trash on the beach or on other public land. Fines for doing it range from about $100 to $2,000. And the problem of coastal litter is a big one. Um, We've all heard about plastic that's being eaten by seabirds and fish and Mm -hmm. killing them. And the trash and plastic actually comes from all over. So Chris Havel really emphasized that it's up to all of us to fight this problem. I don't know when the last time you took a lunch down on the beach, it can get windy and you can lose uh, a napkin, you can lose a piece of plastic, you lose a cup, and you might not think that that's a big deal, but multiply that by hundreds of thousands of people. And you can see that we all need to pay more attention about our own personal habits to make sure we don't contribute to the problem. I just find it really disturbing that this was a case that someone came across all this garbage with all the uh, dangerous chemicals in it. This was one instance. It makes me wonder if there haven't been other times where this stuff got swept out into the ocean without anyone knowing it. And who knows what kind of effects that's having on the local ecosystem. That's pretty troubling to think about. It is. And, you know, I did ask Havel about, like, chemicals, you know, in in the garbage. And he said, in a way, Oregon's been pretty lucky because there are times when, you know, some sort of solvent will will come up, like, in a container maybe from a ship. And um, we've just been really fortunate that we haven't had some kind of major spill. Yeah. And there's not a lot in place to prevent these kind of things from happening. Hmm. Just good that people were vigilant and uh, thinking to look and seeing just what were what was under all that trash. Yeah, and he definitely, you know, Chris Havel and Charlie from Surfrider both were very encouraging of people to pick up trash when you're on the beach. Apparently, there are some sort of stations at 
entrances to, to beach areas that have bags where you can actually grab a bag to pick up trash with. Um, Charlie Plybin with Surfrider recommended bringing a bucket with you when you go to the beach. Huh. So I guess, you know, at this point it's on us to try to be paying attention to these things. Yeah, no, good, good words of advice. Well, I also talked with Chris Havel with the Parks Department about the latest numbers from um, visitors to Oregon's parks. We've been on a trend lately of more and more people um, visiting Oregon's parks. And in fact, the number of of camping nights at Oregon's parks is up to an all-time high. So Chris Havel said that more people are camping at parks in Oregon, and they're actually visiting these campsites at more times of year. The summers are always kind of kooky in the state park system where we see a good number of people visiting even when it's raining, which is great. But the weather's been getting better in spring and better in fall, and that's where we've been seeing some of the larger increases in camping. And Havel says that day visits to Oregon parks have leveled off somewhat, but part of that is due to some properties now being managed by other agencies than the Parks Department. The number of day visits in 2019 was nearly 50 million, so it's no small number. It's just down a bit from 2018 at 51 million. On a side note, uh, Mallory Begay also did an interesting story about how they're trying to get people from underrepresented communities, uh, minorities, and uh, people with from the LGBTQ community out in greater numbers of camps. So it's a kind of interesting little initiative there that uh, we'll have to see. But a lot of people just feel the need to get out. And as far as the uh, Rex people go, they want to see a little diversity out there as well. So I have some numbers of my own to share here. Um, there is a national study done by a marijuana dispensary chain, Verilife, uh, which commissioned it. And it turns out that Oregon is number one in the country for cannabis dispensaries per capita. In fact, if you had a warrant to guess, well, what do you think? Uh, it's per 100,000 people, what do you think? Five? I don't know. No <laughs> idea. No idea. <laughs> Turns out that uh, Oregon averages 16.5 dispensaries per 100,000 people. Um, and eight Oregon cities were in the top 30 nationwide, too, which includes Medford, Eugene, Portland, Corvallis, Springfield, and Bend. And a side note, too, that Oregon's marijuana tax revenue came to $94 million, which is fourth in the nation after California, Washington, and Colorado. Uh, they, uh, the people at Verilife analyzed marijuana dispensary listing data for more than 600 cities. Um, and then they also just kind of did a little number crunching through the uh, Department of Revenue as far as the marijuana taxes go. And uh, it is kind of fascinating. I, I, I did want some extra context, though. I reached out to Mark Pettinger of the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, which oversees licenses and regulations for the state's cannabis markets. And he said he wasn't really that surprised that the Beaver State has weeded out the competition, and <laughs> here's why. So many of those retailers weren't necessarily starting up from scratch. They came over or migrated from the Oregon Medical Marijuana Program. So if you've wandered 10 paces in any random direction and found yourself inside a dispensary, it's not your imagination. Uh, we are thick with dispensaries. And while there has been some consolidation and shuttering of some, like we've seen here in Eugene already, the numbers are holding pretty steady. Uh, stats from the OLCC show that there's currently 1,822 active licenses for marijuana producers, 923 for retailers. Compare that to 350 inactive licenses for same, and you'll see that since recreational marijuana was legalized in the fall of 2015, it's done pretty well here. Well, it seems like there have been many 
marijuana dispensaries that that have opened, you know, that I've seen in Eugene, but also many that have closed or changed ownership. Mm-hmm. Did you ask uh, Mark Pettinger about that? I asked him about um, if there was any uh, downside to the market saturation. He did say that there are some that do consolidate, but he says that if there's any licensing issues or, or ones that have just kind of shut her down, it's usually been people who are really good as far as like cultivating their product, but maybe weren't the most business savvy. Hmm. And he said also too, there have been a number that have just kind of run afoul of the state's regulations and laws. And some, I think, uh, maybe just saw the competition getting a little too heavy and dense for their area. I mean, one of the issues too that's come up is that being that it is not a federal, um, it, being that it is not a federally legal crop as of yet, uh, we can't have in, any interstate commerce happening with cannabis in Oregon. So a lot of it has to stay within. A lot of it stays within the borders. And as we've reported before, too, that has sent the price plummeting <laughs> so that it's extremely cheap, too. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, no pun intended. Cheap and plentiful. Cheap and plentiful, yes. Well, we've got a somber anniversary here with Valentine's Day this week. And you did an arts piece looking at um, this project that came out of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shootings. Elizabeth. Yes. So on February 14th, 2018, uh, 14 students and three staff members were killed in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, Florida. And this is not by any means one of the first mass shootings of late. I mean, there have been so many taking place in schools and public areas, religious buildings. And because of that, Eugene playwright Rachel Carnes decided to create this collaborative group of playwrights who essentially create short plays that are one to five minutes that address gun violence. And so she's created a number of plays that touch on Sandy Hook, as well as a shooting in a Florida airport. And that's received great response from the family members of one of the victims. The daughter of this woman who died found the play online on Jordan's website and read it and wrote to her and said, none of the content that was generated about my mom came close to capturing who she was as a person the way that your play has. In addition to that, Karn says it's been really interesting hearing the response from lifelong gun owners as well. A staged reading that happened in Chattanooga in 2018 uh, resulted in the reading organizer's own dad giving up his NRA membership and turning his guns into the authorities after being a lifelong gun, pro-gun. I think that that turnaround and that sense of shifting priorities shows what maybe these plays can do. So altogether, Carnes and other playwrights have created and collected over 60 plays, and these are online, and people are able to reach out to her so that they can perform the plays in their own communities in an ongoing conversation about gun violence. Sounds fascinating. That's quite a collaboration. 60 playwrights? At least 60 playwrights. So she reached out to the official playwrights group of Facebook, which has over 15,000, I think. So there's a lot of playwrights involved. Wow. Well, thanks, and we'll look forward to your story, which will be at klcc.org. Yeah. This is the Northwest Passage on KLCC. We'll be right back. 
Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank makes a difference in our community through sponsorship of Lane County organizations and the Warm Hearts Winter Drive, supporting homeless shelters across the Northwest. More information on how Columbia Bank team members give back to Lane County is available at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule. Member FDIC. to the Northwest Passage podcast from KLCC News. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald with reporter Brian Bull and journalism fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And now it's time to mention something else from the week that's sticking with us. Brian, you want to start? So here's a cautionary Valentine's Day uh, tale from the headlines. Um, I remember back in the late 90s when online dating became a thing and a lot of us were like, ooh, creepy, ooh, you know, you're supposed to go to the bar to meet someone because that's less creepy apparently. Uh, but over time, you know, online dating's kind of grown and it's become more accepted. And I know a lot of people now who are in the single scene and they say that it's a great venue for meeting people, but there's still uh, bad eggs out there, I guess, so to speak. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that was one case with an 80-year-old Portland man who thought he'd found his new love online. And this widower connected with a Florida woman who wooed and charmed and uh, just kind of uh, uh, cajoled this poor man into uh, sinking $200,000 of his own money into, I believe, the shipment of this gigantic lion statue from China uh, moving up from that country to a Florida art gallery. Well, it turns out, big surprise, that this was not the case. Uh, the poor man was scammed. Brad Hilliard of the Oregon Department of Consumer and Business Services says there's a lesson to be learned here. You know, be very careful with uh, any type of relationship you enter into online. Uh, quite frankly, the, the best advice anyone can take from this, uh, this situation is that if you have not met someone actually in person, uh, don't send them money. Uh, the scammer remains at large. They're not entirely sure if they can ever find who this person was. They might even be out of the country. Elderly people uh, tend to be a very, very favorite target of scammers. They may be a little feeble-minded in their uh, later years, senior moments we call them. They may be forgetful. Or they also may be just very hungry for a companionship. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, uh, a lot of them in the older generations were raised to be very trusting. And so that makes them a special, that makes them especially vulnerable for scams such as this. You know, it seems like such a devastating loss for this fellow who not only lost this potential love interest, but also quite a bit of money. What are some tips for people to avoid having this happen? Yeah, to, to avoid that uh, broken bank account as well as that broken heart, uh, authorities simply advise you to never send money to someone that you have not met in person and do not trust. Uh, be very cautious about sharing personal and financial information. And if you have to transfer money to unknown people or to intermediaries, uh, you use a third-party licensed money transmitter to do so. And of course, keep copies of all your communications uh, with suspected scammers. And then you report them simply to authorities. That includes the FBI. And of course, you'll probably want to mention it to the online dating service that uh, really want to keep these troublemakers out of their business. Well, I hope they catch that scammer. I do too. I really feel sorry for that guy. It's, it's not going to be a very pleasant uh, 
Valentine's Day. And that statue is still in China somewhere. (laughs) And you mentioned that there was documentation, right, for the statue as well? Yeah, there was actually, uh, the man was sent documentation, very uh, formal-looking documentation. It was all fabricated, of course, but it detailed the contract with a museum and it had bank statements. So this was a very sophisticated scam. This was something that was just not done over the phone. There was uh, very official-looking documentation coordinated and this was also carried out over the course of a few months. So there was a lot of relationship building there. And this, uh, I, I doubt that this person was who they claimed to be. They just basically got deep into this person's heart and uh, exploited that. Hmm. Happy uh-huh. Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess the story that I've been looking at this week is, I guess, slightly more or less depressing than that. Um, <laughs> we, we, need that. Please. we need that. We need that. So I've heard that Samsung has introduced a new foldable smartphone. What? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Get out of here. So like a flip phone. Yeah, a flip phone. But it still has the touch screen on it, which is really interesting because there isn't a crack in the screen. It's like a hinge on the back. And Mm -hmm. so when it opens up, it's completely flat. But it looks like, you know, your old-fashioned flip phone, which is kind of cool. Wow. So I'm interested to see how they market it. So, um, so the screen doesn't have like a hinge or crack. It's still pretty seamless. Yeah. I want to see this. Yeah, that sounds yeah. fascinating. But Motorola also has introduced a foldable flip phone as well, which looks like the old Razer flip phones. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. one of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a huh. cool throwback. So two steps forward and 10 steps back as far as the phone evolution yeah, goes. Basically. That's wild. Or new old technology. <laughs> I don't know. If you get that flip phone, you might want to type a text message using emojis. And there was an interesting story on All Things Considered this week about scientists and emojis. Apparently, there's a demand in the scientific community for emojis that represent what they study. Um, so on this in, this in this story, we heard from a geologist who was really excited about a new rock emoji coming out. But when she saw it, she was pretty disappointed. Kind of like, yes. But then I was like, but wait, what what type of rock is that? To her, it looked like a cabbage. It was just kind of dark green, a little wrinkly, a little bumpy, which I guess is what a rock looks like to most people. There's also a new fly emoji, but folks weren't satisfied with that one because it looked more like a housefly than a fruit fly. So we'll see. There are new emojis coming out on a regular basis, so maybe some better versions are on the way. It's endless from there, isn't it? It really is. I mean, there's so many possibilities. I need a black mold emoji. Ooh. Yeah. Not good. (laughs) No, no. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm Journalism Fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm Reporter Brian Bull. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.